In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick and mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. Welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Today we have a very special guest with us, Paul Hedrick, CEO and founder of Sokovas. Paul, welcome to the show. Bobby, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm uh, as, as as I was saying before we kind of got started here. I'm super excited to hear your story and learn a little bit more. If you don't mind, you know, really starting there. How, how did how did the whole idea of Sokovas come about, and how did you how did you start the company? Well, we're about five year five and a half years old, so still in our coming out of our toddler phase into childhood, I guess. But for me, uh, my journey with Tacova started about seven years ago when uh, I was sitting in my office in Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm a born and raised Texan, but I had actually gone and moved to New York uh, to work for an investment firm and after working as a consultant. And, you know, I just had this kind of itch that I couldn't figure out how to scratch and started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, the idea of entrepreneurship started crossing my mind. And, you know, I was working in the consumer products and retail industry, which is you know my passion. And I literally looked at my feet for my first idea and I was wearing my ostrich cowboy boots to the office. You know, that's what, that's what you got to <laughs> do if you're a Texan. <laughs> you're a Texan living in New York and working in Connecticut. You got to let people know where you're from. And, and I just started thinking about, you know, I was my job was to be kind of a brand expert and to to help companies grow rapidly and, and figure out how to uh, connect with the customer better. And I started thinking for the first time about cowboy boots, you know, this industry that I had participated in as a consumer for a long time, uh, really my whole life, but had never really thought about it from a business point of view. And I remembered the experience that I had, and it wasn't a bad one buying the boots that I had on, but it was definitely one that was that left a lot to be desired when I thought about what the modern consumer wants. And this was right around the time when the kind of the direct-to-consumer wave had started to, to crest, you know, kind of the first wave of, of, of brands started to come out. And so I was inspired by that business model. And, you know, that was it. That was the light bulb moment. And of course, a lot more happened since then. And I ended up moving to moving back home to Texas, uh, moved to Austin, Texas, and started working on Tacovas right away. And we launched uh, in uh, late 2015. Tell, tell us a little bit about the brand. What is the brand all about? What are the types of products that you sell? Yeah, for the uninitiated, Tacovas, we're, we're a Western brand. So we uh, are really primarily sell cowboy boots. It's, it's about 80% of our sales today. Our goal is really to be the most beloved Western brand in the world. The Western industry is an interesting one, you know, an under-the-radar one. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar U.S. industry on the consumer side. About 10% of the country participates in it. So it's kind of this interesting mix of being a, a niche market and only you know 90% of the U.S. doesn't participate in it today, but a multi-billion dollar one, which is kind of cool. And, and, you know, so we make everything really that, that's kind of related to that category today. We're building an apparel line. We've got a great accessories business, but really most of our sales today are, are footwear and, and our cowboy boots. And really our cowboy boots are positioned as, you know, the highest quality cowboy boots in the market at an approachable price and approachable designs and 100% direct-to-consumer business model. So 
we were the first you know, to, adopt, to adopt that in our category. And, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely the leading uh, direct consumer brand. Uh, we've been fortunate to have some early success and a lot more to go. But uh, we also have uh, stores of our own now. We started opening stores uh, a couple of years ago. So all in all, um, you know, a brand who's really focused on a great customer experience from soup to nuts. But, you know, most people experience Tecovis with a really awesome looking, really comfortable pair of boots that doesn't break the bank. Love it. Love it. Love it. And uh, it's interesting because we have one of our designers actually uh, lives in Austin. And as he heard that we're going to have this podcast, he was super excited. You're a celebrity for sure. Uh, uh, for a lot of, lot of folks that kind of love uh, cowboy boots and, and love the brand, you've, you've created a really strong brand there. So kudos to you. That's great. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I learned something as I was kind of reading more about the brand and you. It takes over 200 steps to, to make a single boot. Is that is that true? Yeah, you know, it's such a cool product. It's one of those things that I knew as I approached my entrepreneurial journey, it was going to be a lot more interesting for me uh, to be involved in the product side in a deep way and, you know, design things from soup to nuts from the beginning. And I fell in love you know, the first time I went to Leon, Mexico, which is where uh, we still make all of our footwear. It's the bootmaking capital of the world. And there's these you would call them factories, but they're they're just really great groups of people, and it's all handmade that are making these boots, and they have been for for decades. And it's cutting leather by hand, it's stitching it uh, on Goodyear welting machines by hand, it's hand hammering these one wooden pegs uh, in the midsole area, and it, I mean it's just pretty incredible to watch it done, and, and the level of craftsmanship that still goes into it. Uh, it's pretty old school. I think there's some there's you know our 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 it's not really one of our brand tenets by any means, but if you really think about what we do at Tecovis, we really try to merge and blend old and new. We, we try to blend craftsmanship with, with modern retail. We try to blend old school customer service with a omni-channel you know, shopping experience. So definitely a trend I'm a fan of and a, and a really cool process to watch. That's awesome. That's awesome. You opened up your, your, your first store in, 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 I think, March of 19, 2019. And now you have uh, looks like more than thirteen stores. Is that is that true? Yes, we opened. We're opening store number fifteen tomorrow in Charlotte, North Carolina. So yeah, about yeah, fifteen stores in about twenty five months. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's been a fun journey. We we opened our first store when we were three years in business and had you know really been online only only through Tecovis.com. and you know we knew that the the customer really likes to purchase in store still. And I, and I, and for me, you know, stores were, a, were always a, a when, not an if, and a how many, you know, question more than anything. And, and that, you know, it, it goes back to first principles. I mean, for our category, you know, still 80 plus percent of the, of the products are bought offline. And, you know, part of the reason is that because our category has been a little behind the curve, but you know, 75% of retail in the U.S. is still bought offline. Uh, of course, the, the pandemic this past year um, hit some pretty crazy acceleration numbers. You know, maybe I, I've read that it accelerated it by 10 years. But even so, uh, our category is likely going to be majority offline for a long time. So, you know, who are we to, to, to try to give the customer something that they don't want? So, uh, you know, and, and at the end of the day, we're a high-end product, a very fit-oriented product. A product that honestly, I mean, it just, it's amazing in person. It looks, feels, even smells <laughs> different um, than it can online. And, you know, and, and the, the added bonus for us is that we knew that there was an opportunity in our category to really up 
the game on retail and, and create something different and kind of take some of these experiential and retail hospitality focused trends and apply them to this category in a way that hadn't been applied before. And, you know, Tecovis is pretty, I think the thing that we're most famous for uh, that I'm proud of is, is our customer service. And it's just so much easier to give that one-to-one customer service when you're, you know, when you're shaking their hand and when you're handing them a, a free glass of bourbon <laughs> as they try on their boots. And so, yeah, it's been a game changer for us. Uh, a very important part of our business and a big focus of mine. Yeah, I mean, congrats. I, I, that's that's huge success here, you know, with opening up locations. And, I, and of course, I'm a big believer of in-location experiences as well. It's interesting, actually, as, as we went into COVID, of course, as you said, you know, technology accelerated. There was a lot of buying online. You had to kind of figure out different models to be able to serve customers. But I really think at the end of the day, the commoditized products are the ones that you buy online. The the products that are unique, the product, the companies that and brands that are unique are the ones that are really still you know focused on the on the in location experience. Uh, part of part of you know our research here with the the last uh, consumer behavior report that we did, it was interesting. Fifty six percent of uh, consumers that we polled still said you know they they buy from brands that have a really phenomenal kind of in location experience where they can to your point shake hands and and really see people and and get to know the brand and the people that work in the brand and then the products, of course, that, that they want to purchase. So big believer as well. Completely agree with what you were saying. How did you manage to, uh, Paul, to, to, to grow at such a rapid rate as far as you know, store locations go? I know your, your D2C component probably has huge growth as well, but in-store, how were you able to grow the, the store count so, so quickly? Yeah, so good question. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, believe it, there are other brands certainly who have opened more stores in fewer time, um, of course, but or smaller amounts of time. But, you know, the tactical answer is, you know, we were really fortunate to have had a pretty significant online business already, you know, in the eight figures, you know, well before we opened our first store. So we had, you know, candidly the resources to be able to build our team and tackle a lot of those those challenges that would maybe prevent many smaller brands from getting as aggressive with even opening store number one. Um, Cause you really do have to make quite a big investment. You, know, you need a team, you need a corporate team, you know, you got to pay for design and build out and, and inventory and, and connection connectivity into all your systems. So, you know, the, the leap to opening one, it really wasn't actually that big of a leap to go from one to five, uh, you know, really be ready to open five in the first year. And then for us, the honestly, the tactical story was we opened the first one and we knew that we'd be able to monitor the results before we committed to, you know, stores two, three, four, five, but we would be ready to, to release them. And honestly, the results were so strong and our conviction was proven to be right that, yeah, we pretty much immediately figured out that we could have a pretty profitable store model and and sort of asked ourselves a question as a board and as a management team, uh, yeah, how many can we open and not screw up the customer experience and, and, and you know, just maximize it for everyone? So that's the short answer. Uh, I, but from my perspective, honestly, it's been about conviction. I've been highly convinced for a while that retail stores would be really important for us. And, you know, the vast majority of our category sale, like I said, are still offline. So we were very confident in that plan. And (laughs) I think confidence tends to be rewarded when it's right. And, you know, for entrepreneurial ventures and listen, I mean, we're, we're a, we're still a very entrepreneurial company at the end of the day. We've, we, we like to take big bets and, and, you know, for the customer and, and we're confident in the, in the customer is just as much as they're confident in us. Yeah, love it. Love it. Love it. That's great. As you were, you know, kind of opening up new locations, did you have a, you know, one of the common questions that we get from 
from folks that are trying to open up their either their first location or multiple locations is you know, how do you decide what's the next location? Did you have any sort of process of how you picked uh, you know the next locations that you wanted to build? Yes, uh, I would say the obviousness of those decisions definitely um, decreases <laughs> over time. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, for us, we were lucky in that we're a, a Texas-based you know, Western boot brand largely. And so if you just looked at our top markets, if you just use our own e-commerce sales as the number one, the only thing you look at, I mean, honestly, the first five, if not 10 locations were pretty obvious. You know, we had these concentrated Southern cities, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, you know, Nashville, Atlanta, Nashville, Atlanta, we, we didn't get to open until this year. Atlanta's actually not even open yet. But I would say those were the obvious ones. And then when you really start to dig into, for us, you know, kind of that 5 to 20 and then 20 to 50, the 20 to 50 is going to be hard. We're not quite there yet. Um, but, you know, that 5 to 20, I think you you really start to dig into the technology side of it. Um, you can look at your different data sources. We leverage, um, you know, broker partners that have data on psychographics. And we've gotten to the point where we're trying to figure out which which data, whether that's our own e-commerce data or psychographic predictive data or, you know, simple kind of old school real estate development, you know, concentration data, you know, which of those are actually predictive for sales. And for us, it's still mostly been go where our customer is. But I think over time, you know, we'll start to to look more at that real estate level data. And yeah, I think for us, it's just a question of how many, you know, and I mean, if, if the answer was, we just want a really, really high volume flagship model, then you know, there's just fewer locations. But if we want to scale this to 100 units in the U.S., you know, you have to get a lot more tactical. You know, one of the things that you talked about is that in-location uh, customer experience. How, what, are, what are the key elements of, of your brand that make the customer experience in-location unique? Yeah, I would say that the overarching element is hospitality. I'm a big fan of of Danny Meyer, uh, you know, the Union Square Hospitality Group and, and Shake Shack, and he and he wrote the book on on how hospitality is a good business. Literally, um, you know, make make that required reading into Covis, and you know, for us, it translates into you know, friendly faces, conversations, no commission salespeople, free drinks, beautiful spaces that make you feel like you're you know, at home or at a, at a friend's house with a beautifully but approachably designed space. And, you know, I think for us, the big difference is, is comparing, comparing ourselves to our, the competition in the offline retail space for Western. And, you know, most of the larger format stores that kind of dominate that category have kind of this grocery style inventory on the floor, sorted by size, you know, all brands kind of next to each other, self-serve and, you know, big kind of warehousey spaces. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that model. In fact, sometimes that's exactly what you want if you're going looking more for discovery and, and for something really unique. But ours is different. You know, ours is a brand with a curated lineup. We've got more of a showroom style space where, you know, it's more focused on the facings individually and, and displaying them beautifully in a way that, that really tells the, the story. And um, it's a lot more focused on one-to-one customer service. And, you know, you can browse and if you want, you know, I mean, our, like, like I said, none of our folks are commissioned. So really, they're just there to make you happy. And I mean, what better job is there to whose sole uh, success factor is to make someone happy and you've got a free drink budget to deal with? <laughs> it ends up being a, ends up being good. And, I, you know, we haven't done all the exact math on whether, you know, letting people in, inviting a man and getting up sparkling water or bourbon for that matter is 
really increases their <laughs> average order value or conversion rate, but uh, I, I would not be surprised if it is very positive. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I could definitely be a tester if you ever want to test that. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, perfect. So as you're, as you're looking at your, your kind of space and really, I would, from all my reading and from talking to you, it's really kind of a, a luxury product, right, that, that you offer. How do you make a luxury product that's accessible, you know, to, to really price conscious customers and, and still kind of stand out as really uh, a great, strong, solid brand? Yeah, you know, the, the word luxury is, is is interesting because I think it used to simply mean high price. And I think we actually a lot of times avoid that word so that we're not associated necessarily with the unapproachable side of the world. I mean, I think it's true. I think it's luxury because a luxury is something that's really high quality and, and feels special and makes you feel happy. And, you know, and I, one thing I should note is that we're definitely an approachably priced brand given what we make. But you know, we are not a cheap product. And, you know, there's many, many brands in the category, even ours that that sell boots for less. They just happen to be, you know, lower cost of goods and different kind of manufacturing origins and, and whatnot. But, you know, the, the obvious answer, the tactical answer is we, we simply don't mark our products up <laughs> as much as the normal, as, as a wholesale brand would. We aim for our products to be the absolute highest quality in the category. And we can basically remove a whole keystone margin for the retailer uh, that isn't there. So, you know, we take anywhere between one and two keystones as opposed to three. So, you know, kind of translates into that 30 to 50% discount to uh, what would have been going through the normal high-end retail wholesale supply chain. But, you know, arguably more importantly, from a design and merchandising perspective, our goal is to make our whole brand and product line approachable and not just price. You know, make it so that people are com comfortable you know, buying boots for the first time or the hundredth time. Making sure that you have approachable boots in stock all day, every day. You know, talk about the key attributes in a real way. You know, they're comfortable. It looks good. It, it you know, versus kind of a pie in the sky and you know, unapproachable brand way. So just be human and you know, sell products the way you might try to sell your friend something with honesty. Yeah. No. And and of course. Your brand is high on the list, but what are some brands that you like to shop in the sense of what are stores that you admire? What are brands that you admire that you actually go have and go to and see a really phenomenal kind of in-location experience? Yeah, it's a great question. There are many. I mean, I, I get inspired by by retail all the time. You know, some of my original inspirations were, you know, some of the the first brands that innovated in the space. You know, tough to needle in the mattress category. I, you know, I own multiple tough to needle mattresses. They were the ones who really I think pioneered that first bed in the box and um, and did it at a, at, a, at a really approachable price. We're friends with the Warby Parker uh, guys. One of their founders is on my board, and I mean they've they've just continued to prove that they can keep making things better as they scale to pretty great heights. Uh, and and their in location experience is pretty awesome. I mean they I walk into a Warby Parker and they they know if I'm wearing the Warbies and they compliment them. You know, for us, we have a bit of a parallel. We have a rule in our stores where I, I tell the staff to to compliment any pair of cowboy boots they see, especially if they're not Tacovas, and just kind of have this rising tide and friendly mentality. And I think a lot of brands have that friendly mentality, that, that sort of Southern hospitality. Billy Reed's a good one. From a merchandising perspective, I really enjoy, uh, I like Buck Mason. You know, they've got a great kind of credo, which is just make few things, make them better and just focus on staples and the American wardrobe. And 
well, we're, we're getting into apparel now. So I'm replacing more and more of my <laughs> Buck Mason with, with Dakota shirts and, and pants and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, that, I mean, there's so many great, great brands out there. And we, we've got another internal credo, which is the brand with the most friends wins. And we just don't ever badmouth anyone. We just, we just want to be the good guys, you know, be the friendly one. Absolutely. Paul, as you think about, you know, there's, this is again, another main question that we get from a lot of listeners is, you know, tell us how these great brands like took over us, how, how do they actually, how do they actually kind of grow that in location? How do they figure out what to, what to include in their in location experience, right? Or, or what aspects of the in location experience matter to them based on their, their customer profile? What advice would you give these, to these types of, you know, companies that are really trying to figure it out and figure out how to build a, a great brand like, like yours? Yeah, if you're focused on in location, and I'm a big believer in retail. And honestly, I, I think I, I tell people if I if I were starting another brand, you know, today, even a direct to consumer brand, I'd still I'd probably open with a store, just because I think it's so powerful. But I would I would think about where where you where you sit on the spectrum. I mean, listen, not every not every brand is is trying to be a super you know ultra luxury, you know, really service oriented brand. Some other brands might be more focused on volume or even commodities as you as you mentioned. But I would think about what's the most important thing to get right. You know, for us it was it was service and an environment and kind of a, if you build it, they will come mindset, knowing that like I, I trusted that you know when we built a store and it may be the same for someone else that if it's the only place to buy our product then we were going to have people coming in droves and so traffic wasn't really going to be an issue and therefore sales weren't going to be really an issue so really we just needed to focus on making it amazing inside but that also meant prioritizing that meant you know at the beginning not making massive investments in technology and systems for the retail space specifically you know, we, we just use Shopify out of the box, for example, <laughs> you know, which was really helpful. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we had to get a lot of our other ducks in a row. You know, NetSuite, we, we wouldn't be able to have opened a store without NetSuite, for instance, um, or even consider new technologies. So there's some, there's some data tying together that we had to do, but we, we had to prioritize. And so I, I would tell the same thing to another brand, which is you might want to get 10 things right. You might only be able to get five of them right. And, you know, you can solve the other ones later. We're definitely trying to solve the stuff that we didn't get right in the first couple of years now. And of course, we've got a little bit of technical debt to work out of, but you know, that's okay. You said one thing that I think is key, and, and I also advise a lot, a lot of companies. I think one of the thing, one of the things that uh, I guess one of the uh, the only things or or few things that came came out of the pandemic that that were good for brands was being able to you know the, the brands that didn't have kind of strong e-commerce plays or direct buy plays um, to consumers, they were able to institute those in a lot of ways and be able to learn from the data and, and what people are buying, right, from, from their brands. And so I think one of the, the questions that comes out is you uh, have definitely kind of used data to be able to make that make that customer experience better, to make probably the, the interactions that you have with your customers better, whether it's in-store or online. What do you believe is the power of, of data technology, especially kind of in the retail sector? Yeah, I mean, data is everything. I, I think for us, the, you know, the biggest impact of, of data and technology is simply in, you know, day-to-day -day management and forecasting and, and making decisions and planning because there is traffic counting technology and online sales dashboards and, you know, Looker we use for reporting any metric that's stored in uh, NetSuite, which is what, you know, our ERP, you know, we're able to make excellent operating decisions of the day-to-day, -day, but we're also able to make really important strategic decisions because we've been able to pull all this 
data together and we can actually see. I mean, here's the thing about growing fast to, to reference your other question that you asked before. A lot of times we're we're opening a store and then immediately looking at how it's doing and learning from it right away versus waiting a year, uh, you know, to, to see if it comps or whatever. Like, And we're making real estate decisions based on that. You know, so there's, there's really nothing richer than customer data. But yeah, I think the, the most important thing for retail to get right is that I think for us and for a lot of these D2C brands who may be entering the offline world or, you know, traditionally offline brands that are entering the e-commerce world, I mean, the biggest challenge is stitching together the data. I didn't have a great appreciation of this, honestly, until, you know, my CFO and, and head of ops kind of told me how hard it was going to be to to be doing all this stuff that should seem easy. Like it seems, it seems like it should be easy, right? To just, you know, sell stuff in multiple channels and track inventory everywhere and have it all be the same. And man, it is, it is not. And so I think the data accuracy, people are always asking me, you know, hey, how are you going to approach omni-channel initiatives? When are you going to do Vopus, you know, buy online and pick up in store? When are you going to do ship from store? And when can I go to the website and choose between either picking it up in Austin's store or shipping it to me? And, and you know, we've realized that, that data, you, you can't do that without the data being accurate. You can't do that without the data being tied together everywhere. So there's honestly just a base capability that I think probably most smaller companies maybe underestimate. So yeah, it's we're in the thick of it right now, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure, for sure. And I think it's it's one of the things that of course, you know, evolves as as consumer behavior also evolves. And it's a it's a it's an ever-changing component of of, of tying into to how you want to communicate and the, the services that you want to provide to con- customers, of course. You've been giving us a wealth of information. I promise the last question. Uh, this 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 was great. I'm learning a lot from you here. What do you anticipate will be kind of the technology that you think will have the biggest impact on shaping the future of brick and mortar retail as, as, as we go along here? You know, I think fundamentally it's going to be something maybe rather unsexy, which is, you know, making kind of like kind of solving the challenge that I just mentioned. I think, you know, really allowing omni-channel commerce to be fully merged with sort of the the internal company movements, you know, so inventory accuracy and movement and visibility. I actually, to me, maybe I'm, I I believe me, I think there's going to be other trends. You know, I think SMS commerce is huge. We're already looking into it on our end. We do do SMS for, you know, for CRM, you know, text messages and whatnot for loyalty and product drops and such. But, you know, at the end of the day, as long as the store is the store and the website's the website, the main commerce bases are kind of covered. So, you know, I think it's going to be these larger enterprise companies you know, again, like 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 NetSuite that can help enable and tie this all this stuff together. And if they can, if we can figure out how to really seamlessly build this omni-channel commerce platform on the front and the back end, I mean, that would be the most impactful thing to everyone that I know. I mean, I, every CEO and you know, head of retail that I've talked to, you know, that's more of a I hope that happens than a than a prediction maybe. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, but listen, there's no there's no silver bullet. I think one thing I've realized is. There's always going to be a lot of things that, that change, but fundamentally, at the end of the day, you're selling a product to a customer, and and there's going to be a lot of ways to do that over the years. But the, but the like, as long as you're still focused on that first thing, then you know who the customer is and what you're giving them, then you know the rest should solve itself over time. Absolutely, absolutely makes a lot of sense, Paul. That was a wealth of information. Thank you so much for for giving us, uh, you know, giving our listeners uh, so much expertise here. Before I let you go, uh, and I'm going to be in the 
the Austin area in about four weeks. I'm going to come check out your location, of course. But what are some cool things to do in Austin? Uh, what, what are some of your favorites? Well, you can go to our first Tacova store and or, or our second Tacova store in Austin. <laughs> no, I mean, Austin. Austin's a great town. And as as people may have been reading, it's a lot of people are, are coming here. <laughs> uh, definitely growing. But I mean, honestly, just an incredible place to build a company, to live. Incredible food, breakfast tacos and barbecue. I think the two best cuisines here you know, are superlatives. Um, great live music and you know, pretty great weather in the spring and the fall uh, and the summer. There's, you know, we're, the city's on a, what we call a lake, but really it's sort of a dammed up river, but, you know, we'll call it a lake. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the few Texas towns that kind of is able to merge all those things together. So lots to do. And uh, yeah, hit me up. Absolutely. would love to come get my first pair for sure. So that's great. Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for spending some time with us today. Our listeners are, are going to really enjoy this and have a great rest of your day. You too, Bobby. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in this show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortarreborn.com.